Hello and welcome to Veterinary Journal Club. Uh, I'm excited to invite two new guests to the show today. Um, so Jacqueline Torturo and Angela Dugan are final year veterinary students um, here at Virginia Tech and, or Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. I don't, I don't actually, I, Virginia Tech has fewer words, so I like to say that. But anyway, um, so um, I've invited you guys on today and you guys came up with the idea to talk about CPR on the podcast, which is not something we've talked about on the podcast before. So, which is, I, I guess maybe should, I should be embarrassed as a critical care doctor that we haven't talked about CPR, but um, yeah. So welcome, Jacqueline. Thank welcome. you very much. Hello, everybody. Yeah. Angela. Thank hey you guys. for being here. Absolutely. Yeah. So you guys are about to graduate in like three or four minutes. And <laughs> oh is it that soon? It's, I think, yeah. <laughs> I, I think as soon as we're done here, I think that's where we're going. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. In like three or four weeks, I think is what it is. What? You guys know. How many days is it? 20 days. There you go. Okay. Yep. We know. <laughs> I, knew, I knew somebody was going to know. Um, so you were about to graduate and then you guys are going to be out in practice um, so in 20 days and one minute, yeah, you will be <laughs> veterinarians, right? And Real deal. Yep. So why, why did you want to talk about CPR? Well, I'm going into emergency practice in New York. And so I feel like CPR is going to be something that I have to face on yes. hopefully not regular basis, but often but enough yeah, to have yeah. to be comfortable with it. Okay. That makes sense. Angela? Yeah, I... Same. I am uh, going to somewhere that has urgent care and it's a very valuable tool to not be total deer in the headlights when something comes in that you need to treat. Yeah. So because right now when, you know, if you're in the hospital and a patient codes and we do CPR, you guys aren't running that. But yeah. in 20 days and one minute, approximately, <laughs> you guys could be expected to run the code. Right. Yeah, yes. We have to know. That's what we call mm -hmm. running the code. Like you're in charge, making the decisions. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll chat about that. The first thing I think though, um, that at least for me often gets overlooked when we start talking about doing CPR is when should we do CPR? So when, when do we, when do we do CPR? When are you going to need to do it? When a patient either goes into, um, cardiovascular arrest or respiratory arrest. Yeah. So in a patient arrests and like, what's a, that's kind of a euphemism. It's like a medical term. What does that really mean? When you can no longer feel a heartbeat. What does that mean? What, what's going on with the patient? They, they are dead. They're dead. Yeah, exactly. We always like, for some reason when we talk about CPR, we never, like people tend to not use the term death or they, they died, but that is what happened that we don't do CPR in patients who haven't died. I think it's a really important thing for us as clinicians to remember this is a patient who has died. There's no point in doing CPR in a live patient like that. We don't, there's, there's no need. You don't do it. Um, and I, I don't say that to make light of it, but to actually emphasize the gravity of the situation that this is a patient who has died. And then what we're going to do by CPR is try to perform a miracle and bring them back to life. Okay. So like, that's how I think of it is like, we're going to, we're going to be like, no, 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 not today. We're going to bring you back. And when you, I think when you put it in those terms, it makes a lot more sense that the potential outcome for CPR is not great, right? Because dying is a poor prognostic indicator for whatever. That's one what, way of saying mm -hmm. it. Right? Um, you know, patients who die are very likely to stay that way. Dying is bad for you, right? Like all the different ways you can, but when, you, when we, we say arrest or we use all these, they're kind of euphemisms and we don't say, no, the patient has died. We yeah. only do CPR in dead patients. You shouldn't do CPR in a live patient. So first, I, I think it's really important to drive that point home. 
Um, this is the, whatever disease it is, by definition, it is the most severe form of disease it can be. Whatever caused, <laughs> whatever caused the arrest, it was the most severe form of whatever it was that could be. Okay, cool. So do we do CPR in every patient who dies? No. 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 Okay. Cool. So we've got patients who are dead and some of them we do CPR on and some of them we don't. Which ones should we do CPR on and which ones shouldn't we? I feel like the ones that have a better prognosis of um, living a good quality of life okay. post-resuscitation. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Like you have a better prognosis, but your prognosis, we already said, is pretty terrible because you've died. <laughs> so, so what do you mean? And how do you decide? I'll give you two it's examples. It's hard. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. So, perfect. A two-year-old, young, healthy Labrador that was hit by a car and comes in sh into the hospital in shock. Okay. Um, crashes and arrests. Okay. Performing CPR on that patient may be more productive to the long-term outcome. Okay. Um, versus a 16-year-old dog with cancer. Okay. Um, that patient, if they go into cardiac arrest, their chances of surviving and having a good quality of life post-resuscitation may not be as great. Okay. So are you saying we should only do CPR on young patients? I feel like that's also an owner's decision to make. Oh, okay. All right. We're going to come back to the, the, the owner and the clients, but is it, a, is it a young old thing? So we should always do CPR on young patients and never do it in old patients. I love the examples you gave. I mm -hmm. do. But I want to get to the, like, what about those examples said, you know, because I, I think a lot of us can understand that. Like a young, a young dog that got hit by a car versus an older dog that has cancer. I think a lot of us can make it something like, okay, I sort of see where you're going, but what, let's, let's narrow it down to what is the specific thing that you're really talking about? Because what if it was an older dog that got hit by a car versus a young dog that had cancer? I guess the underlying disease process. Oh, okay. Tell me more about this. Um, if it was an an acute something that acutely happened that caused the patient to arrest okay um, versus a chronic degenerative disease that has caused the patient to arrest um, okay is it acute versus chronic is that really the issue what if they've have flea anemia and they've had fleas for months that's a chronic issue should we not resuscitate the patient that dies from flea anemia i think you should okay <laughs> so it's not the chronicity of it then mm -hmm. so what is it I personally, in my limited experience of being a doctor for two seconds, <laughs> uh, think that it really depends. It's a case-by-case -case basis, but right? So why does have, it depend on? We have multiple factors. We have um, the trauma that the dog has endured mm -hmm. or the the underlying condition that they have. Um, we, we have been conditioned to think that age is not a disease, but there are comorbidities. That yeah. Age isn't a disease, right. but it's a factor, right? right. Like that's mm -hmm. how I always say it. it's not a disease, but it's a factor. Right. So I think when we come in and triage these patients, mm -hmm. there are, um, things like the, the flea anemia mm -hmm. or something, they have been dealing with this for a long time. Right. Who's they? What do you the, mean? The patient. Okay. Been dealing yep. with this okay. for a long time. And they have somewhat adapted. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some compensation going correct. on. And so I think that if you feel as though you can help them with CPR and you can get them over this hump, so to speak, that it is a valuable tool. I mean, how do you know if you don't try? 
So that's one thing. You just yeah. do it in everybody because you don't know. But I want to come back. You guys both mentioned underlying disease. Why does that matter? Like what about that changes your perspective? Well, CPR is not easy on the patient, right? So Well, that's a debate. I mean, they're dead. Yes, but if you have <laughs> if you have something It's that's only not easy on them if you get them back. That is true. Yeah. <laughs> that is very right? true. Right? Yeah. Right? So like if you know, if you break some ribs or things like that and they never come back, then they don't experience that. So the only CPR where I worry about the impact on the patient is the one that's successful, which is, is an important thing to think about. But hard on the patient, sure. But I mean, we're talking life or death here. Like, oh, I can endure some fractured ribs if it means I get to go on and live a, and have a good quality of life like you were talking about, Jacqueline. So what, what is it? When you guys said underlying disease, tell me, talk, talk through that a little bit more because I feel like we'll get to it. What's different between hit by car and cancer? Let me ask it a different way. Why did the dog who got hit by a car die? Because he was healthy prior. But why did he and die? He was, do I mean, he's not healthy now. He shock. died. It, it could be from different things. So what, do you, what, what would be your guess? Like, so tell me, but why do you die? Why did this dog likely, what are the possible reasons for a dog who got hit by a car to die? Hemorrhage. Hemorrhage. Okay, blood loss. Okay, what else? That's a great one. Probably factoring in here. What are some other reasons, like a dog that suffered some trauma, but like trauma to the thorax, like um, causing the pneumothorax. a pneumothorax? Absolutely. So those are reasons that a patient might die. Anything else you can think of? Jacqueline mentioned shock. Yeah. So, but it, do you die from shock? What causes the shock, though? Right. Like hypovolemia. Hypovolemia. Yep. So it kind of goes with hemorrhage, but might be a different. Mm. Might like there might be more to it than that. What else? Okay, well, let's hold on that for now. Okay, now let's go to our 16-year-old, I think, I don't remember what, let's say it was a golden retriever that had cancer. Why did that dog die? Multi-organ shutdown like failure. Okay, so maybe it went into multi-organ dysfunction and like kidney shut down, liver shut down, something like that. Okay, why else might a dog with cancer die? Yeah, like why do they die? Why does any patient die? metastasis but why do they That's die because plenty of you know patients have metastasis and aren't dead why do you die because they're not able to compensate anymore for what what's the problem so herein lies part of the problem okay so what's different about the dog that got hit by a car and the dog that died of cancer and what makes you guys more inclined to want to do cpr on the hit by a car dog than the cancer dog What are you going to do about the dog that got hit by a car? Try your best to stabilize them. How are you going to do that? Fluids. Okay. Um, Tell me more. They have fractures. Stabilize them. Sure. Did they die from their fracture? Uh, attempt to stop the bleeding. There we go. Mm -hmm. Okay. We should stop the bleeding. What else can we do about if they died because of blood loss? Don't you overthink do blood it. Transfusions. transfusions. What if they have a pneumothorax? Tap. Tap the them. Okay. Okay. So we have things we can fix right? We have reversible conditions. Is bleeding a reversible condition? Yes. Yeah. Not always like, but mm -hmm. it, in theory, yes, I can give blood transfusions. I can tie off ble bleeding vessels. Um, I can remove air from around the lungs. I can fix the underlying problem. I can fix fractures, although that's not why they died. But like the things that cause that dog to die 
have potentially reversible cause. But you guys were struggling to even think about like, why did the dog with cancer die? Well, it's probably multifactorial. So maybe it's like multiple organist function syndrome, or maybe they have a perineoplastic syndrome, and maybe we have electrolyte imbalances, or we, but it, it gets more complicated, right? And is if the cancer ultimately is what we think the reason for um, the patient dying, and that's not a, a relatively quickly and easily reversible condition, then the reason that patient died might not be reversible. So the only CPR that's ever going to be successful is if the reason they died is reversible, right? Makes and sense. ideally reversible quickly, right? right? Something that you <laughs> like can it, fix. I need to be yeah. able to fix this. Um, so the patient that was, let's say, let's say it was a 14-year-old um, you know, poodle, and it died from congestive heart failure. But it was the first time that dog has ever been diagnosed with congestive heart failure. So it's not on any medications. Nobody's ever treated with PEMO. It's never seen Lasix. It doesn't know any of that. That patient has a much better prognosis. If I, if I, can, get it, um, if I can get it back, I can treat that because there's a lot to do versus mm -hmm. the 14-year-old mini poodle that um, was diagnosed with congestive heart failure eight months ago and has been back in the hospital three or four times. And we've maxed out on PEMO and we keep increasing the furosemide. We threw in spironolactone. Like... I'm running out of things I can do, right? So those are two patients with the same disease that caused them to die. And I would recommend CPR in one and maybe not in the other. So um, it, you're right. It's a case-by-case -case basis. But the crux of it for me is do they have, the, is the, the reason for the arrest something I can reverse? Do I have a chance of reversing it? And if the answer is, I, like, I don't know what else I'm going to do. So like the patient that's in my ICU and I'm doing everything I can to try to keep that patient from dying. And despite my best efforts, it dies anyway. What am I holding back? Because now that patient has died. If I get it back, it has all the same things that led it to die in the first place. And now it's got all these new problems from having died what's my goals here? Like what, you know, what's my end game? So absolutely the dog that arrests under anesthesia, like it has an elective procedure and it dies like, whoop, that's a reverse. General anesthesia is a reversible disease. Um, anesthesiologists don't always like it when I call it a reversible <laughs> disease, but that's what it is, right? Like I can, I can, I can turn off the gas. Um, I can reverse the drugs that are reversible. I can stop giving drugs that aren't reversible. Like those are reversible conditions. And that's, that's one that's like, yeah, easily reversible. And so that's why we have good luck with something like anesthetic related deaths, um, because that's quickly and easily reversible. It still doesn't mean, you know, three quarters of dogs that die under anesthesia are going to stay that way, even if they were perfectly healthy before. Um, but for me, that factors into, should we even do this? Now, we're not all going to agree on a case-by-case -case basis, right? Angela might be like, uh, I don't think we should do CPR on this one. And Jackie, you might be like, yeah, totally, that's reasonable. I'm going to do that. And I might fall, you know, sometimes I, it's Tuesday, so I feel like, yeah, maybe today. Like, I don't even always agree with myself necessarily. Um, so it's not necessarily about that in my opinion, but it is thinking about that and having a conversation, in my opinion, with a client, ideally before it, ha it happens, about whether or not CPR makes sense in this situation. Because again, if this is a patient and I can have the conversation and say, in this case, if, you're, if, if your dog continues to decline with whatever its disease is, and we're trying to prevent it from dying and it dies anyway, I don't think CPR makes a lot of sense versus, hey, your dog's pretty stable right now. We're going to sedate him to take some x-rays. If he arrests during that, I think we should do CPR because one, I don't know what's going on with him yet. That's why I'm getting the x-rays. Um, and two, it, it sounds like we precipitated that by giving XYZ. So I think we, we, we always treat this like it's a black and white thing or that it's entirely up to the client. 
I don't think it is. And I don't think it should be entirely up to the client. I mean, I think the client has the right to make their pet a DNR, a do not resuscitate. Because doing CPR carries with it. Like if we're successful, when there's cost associated with CPR itself, and then there's a lot more cost associated with keeping a patient alive that you've brought back after dying. Um, and if they're like, we're not ready to commit to that, I think that's fine. But just because a client wants CPR done on their patient, in my opinion, that doesn't mean we should offer it. Um, we can have a whole conversation about that. But, um, but let's say we have a patient now who has a reversible condition. You guys can pick one or we can just kind of go with a theoretical thing for right now. And we, we all feel like, yes, let's do CPR. It's been decided the owners are on board. Let's do CPR. What are you going to do? What happens? The dog died. Ah, go. Start CPR. Okay, what does that mean? So as a soon-to-be new grad veterinarian, we talked about how we as veterinarians are going to run the code. Yeah. And I think the first thing that, at least when I've been a part of a code before, mm -hmm. that is a problem is we don't know what our roles are, yeah, right? So okay. everyone's kind of just running around like, yes, we need to start CPR. What do yeah. we do? Who does yeah. what? As a veterinarian, you have okay. to delegate. Right. Okay, yeah. So somebody needs to lead the CPR. Um, and that's usually the veterinarian. It doesn't have to be the veterinarian. If you're in a practice and you've got a technician who's been doing this for 20 years and like she's amazing and she takes over and runs the code and you're, yeah, absolutely. Let, let her run the code. Um, and if, if there's multiple doctors in the room, one of them is going to be in charge. Every single person involved in that code has a responsibility to speak up and make suggestions and have ideas. We just need one person to sort of be officially like, okay, I am running this code. I'm going to direct traffic. That doesn't mean like if I take over, um, because it, in, a, in a room full of veterinarians, if I'm the only criticalist, I'm probably going to run the code. Like that, it sort mm -hmm. of makes sense. That's kind of my bag. So I'm going to run the code. But that doesn't mean that if, if you guys have an idea, like I can't think of everything. It's a code. Like there's a lot going on. And so um, if I'm, you know, hey, hey, I need you to come over here and get this, blah, blah, blah. And Angela, you go, do you want me to get epinephrine? Yes, thank you. I do. Like I want you to speak up. And so when you're talking to your teams about training, yeah, we have roles, but everybody's role is to contribute if they have a thought, if you have an idea, if you want to, hey, we haven't done this. Do you want me to do this? Yes, please. Do you want me to do that? I'm going to, or I'm going to go get this. Yes, excellent. Because it is too much to have one person to be responsible to think of everything. If you think of everything, yes, wonderful. That's great. But if you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I wonder, I wonder why they don't want to do this. It's probably just because they haven't thought of it yet. So please, please, please speak up and please encourage your teams to do the same. Um, because if you're running the code, the greatest thing in the world is for somebody to be like, would you like me to? Yes, that's a great idea. Do that thing. Thank you for thinking of it. Like I will get to it eventually, but I can only have so many thoughts in my brain at one time, right? There's no such thing as multitasking. Like it's, right. it's, it's, it's not a thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yes, if you're the one running the code, you do want to generally step back and you're not going to be doing the things if you have enough people. You might not have enough people. So you might have to be doing chest compressions while also directing traffic. And that's okay. Um, but if you have enough people, if you can be the person standing back, just barking orders, <laughs> but yeah, it's also not the time. Like I always afterwards, I'm like, sorry, there were no pleases or thank yous or anything like that. They're assumed. We don't have time. Could you please stop? No, no, no. Just get this, get this, do this, do this. You're going to just be a little bit short with people. There isn't time for anything else. Um, so yeah, if you can just be the one Barking order. So what's the first order you would bark? Establish an airway. Establish an airway. You agree, Angela? I would actually start chest compressions. Interesting. First. Okay. So we already have a divergence. So who's right? 
I know that historically mm-hmm. it was said like you establish an airway, start giving breaths, and then do yeah a- airway breathing circulation ABC. Um, but now I. I understand it as establish an airway, but then do compressions. Don't worry about giving actual um, manual breaths. Okay. And you said, don't even worry about the airway, start compressions first. Obviously, right. both so are important. Both, yes, both are important. Um, and I seem to recall that we now, instead of like our ABCs, airway breathing, mm-hmm. you know, compressions, it's now CAB. So compressions. And hopefully you have a wonderful technician that can intubate while you're yeah. doing this, <laughs> while the patient is lateral and every, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, but that the circulation needs to be happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this changed before. in human medicine. It went from ABCs to BACs in human medicine, um, largely talking about bystander arrests, so like out of hospital arrests um, for a couple of reasons. Um one, you have to think about in people, the primary reason that somebody's out there in the world and they just suddenly drop dead. What is the most likely reason? Heart attack. They had a heart attack. Yeah. So what's going to be more important in that patient? Getting circulation or getting breathing? Circulation. Like, circulation. Okay. So the main, the main reason that people drop dead outside of a hospital is they had a heart attack. So um, cardio, cardiac arrest. Um, also... Um, Oh God, I can't even think about it like right now. So we're in the midst of a, of a pandemic still and somebody drops dead and you're like, oh, well now I have to put my mouth on their mouth. And uh, mm, you know what? I, I've, I'm not certified to give CI. Like, yeah, like bystanders are really uncomfortable with that. Even pre-pandemic, people were really uncomfortable with mouth to mouth. And so it was a barrier for people starting CPR. It's just like, if you have to, you have to start doing mouth to mouth. Whereas if you just have to like punch somebody's chest over and over and over, like, I can do that. Yeah, that's it. That's okay. Um, so as a, as to, as a way to reduce the, the barrier for people initiating CPR, um, they said, okay, one circulation is probably important for most people who've had a heart attack Two mouth to mouth is kind of gross and people don't want to do it. Three, by doing chest compressions, I might move a little bit of air. I'm going to cause um, changes in intrathoracic volume and therefore pressure, and maybe I can get some air moving. And so if it's not a primary respiratory arrest, getting the airway first is maybe, it, it is still important, um, but they, they did kind of reorder things a little bit. Um, the other main reason um, for me, because in veterinary most of the time we're doing CPR, it's in a hospital setting. So this is not an out-of-hospital arrest. Um, we're not doing mouth-to-snout very often. Um, I've never done it. Um, we're just going to intubate them. Um, and the reason our patients die, how often is it a heart attack? Rarely. Never. Yeah, like it's never <laughs> a heart attack. That's not really what happens. Um, so primary respiratory diseases is actually a common reason for veterinary patients to arrest. So getting establishing an airway early is incredibly important. However... What does it take to establish an airway? What are the steps involved? What do you need? An ET tube? You need an endotracheal tube. Maybe a laryngoscope? A laryngoscope is kind of cool if you have one. If you don't have one, there's other ways. A light? A light would be wonderful. A person. And then somebody to do it and one person? Some it's people probably can do it, nice. But probably yes, two. two people is <laughs> nice. Um, if you've never um, in a dead patient, I don't do this in a patient that you're like getting ready for anesthesia. But in a dead patient, you can do it by palpation. Like you stick your hand all the way in their mouth. You don't need a laryngoscope or a light, and then you can guide it. You can practice on cadavers, things like that. Um, so that's a, a great um, tool um, to to have in your back pocket for arrest situations, or like if it's a bulldog and you just can't see anything anyway. Um, being able to do it via palpation. Obviously, if it's a small patient, that's not going to work. You can't fit your whole hand back in there. Um, um, 
But most of the time, it's nice to have a second person. So you have somebody kind of holding the mouth open, extending the tongue so that you can use your laryngoscope and your light to get back in there and do that. So it already takes two people. It takes some equipment. You need an endotracheal tube. Okay. What do you need to do chest compressions? Your hands. Yeah, just you, right? Like that's it. And so getting that started while somebody else is going to get the, the endotracheal tube, the laryngoscope and getting things ready makes sense to me. Like just get the, comp- I can do that right now. I don't need anything else. I'm not going to not give chest compressions just because we haven't secured an airway mm-hmm. first um, because I can start doing that right now. So I do tend to go with, um, you know, circulation chest compressions first. Um, but some of that is just logistical. If you, if you could get an airway in instantaneously, um, then yeah, it would make sense still in veterinary medicine to secure the airway. And as Angela kind of implied before, now that you're doing chest compressions, now you're trying to intubate a patient that's a a little bit of a moving target. Um, so it does make it a little more challenging. Um, but that's, that's still the order. So I am going to direct somebody to do chest compressions first thing. It doesn't take anything else. One person can do it by themselves. Cool. Well, let's, Start with that then. Talk me through chest compressions. What does that even mean? What are you going to watch for? As the leader of this code, what are you going to be watching? Um, what are the things you're going to watch that person do and, and give them feedback and correct them if they're doing it wrong? Lock your elbows. Okay. So, yep. Good idea. You want your elbows locked. So, um, I, obviously, this is a podcast people can't see, but um, why does having your elbows locked matter? Like it just helps increase your leverage. Yeah. So you don't have that much strength in your upper arms. You're actually using your upper body and your back to do chest compressions. In order for you to lock your elbows though, what has to be true of you and the patient? You have to be above. You have to be above them. Yes. So it, um, again, it's a podcast. People can't see how tall you guys are, but let's, let's say they're, they're not professional basketball players in here right now. (laughs) Um, none of us are. So if the patient is up on a table and you are too short to do proper chest compressions with your elbows locked, what do you do? Get on the table. No, no, that's my, I know people say that all the time. <laughs> um, my advice is please don't ever do that ever, ever, ever. I ugh, it drives me nuts. I know you didn't come up with that. Um, but I, I knew somebody was going to say it too. And I could be like, ha no. Um, so we're going to come back to why not? Cause you're like, why not? Why can't I just get up on the table? Um, what's better than getting up on the table? There's two other options that are acceptable getting on a stool next to the a table? stool would be so much better. Um, or you don't have a stool. The stool's broken. Put the patient on the floor. Put the patient on the floor. Okay. Why do I not want you to get up on the table with the patient? What's the problem? Falling hazard. Oh, okay. So yeah, I don't like the idea of you getting up on the table. What happens if you fall and hit your head? And now I have to choose between continuing CPR in the patient that I was already doing it. And now I have to decide if I'm going to help you. You might not like what I choose. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you you could injure yourself and I don't want you falling off the table. That's one thing. But let's say you're like, I feel very confident. I'm super um, agile and my balance is fantastic. I'm not worried about that. What else is the problem? I want you to picture in your mind the last CPR you saw and now picture somebody on the table during that CPR. How's that? How's that working out? A little messy. What do you mean? There's a lot of objects and things on the table. And now we have a giant person in the way. You're in the way. Mm -hmm. You're in the way. You are in the way. I also, (laughs) when you switch off, yeah, how are you going to do that? You know, yeah, that becomes like, it's very cumbersome. Just, it's, it doesn't work. It looks very dramatic and you seem very heroic and that's wonderful. Get out of the way. Get off the table. You're in my way. <laughs> Your butt's in my face right now. Um, so I do not, plus like 
if you're too short to do chest compressions, getting up on the table is not going to be easy for you. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's impractical. It's unsafe. And even if it was practical and safe, you're in the way. I'm trying to put a catheter in and now there's like a, a human leg in the way and like it, it, there's just not room for you. Um, it's just not needed. So if you don't have a stool is best. And so near your crash area, wherever you keep all of your emergency supplies, keep a stool um, and make sure people don't steal that for other non-urgent things. Um, but if you have to put that patient, if it's like a giant dog and even with the stool, you put them on the ground. Just put them on the ground. Um, but yeah, all of you out there listening that were thinking, there were a lot of them, don't worry. There were a lot of people that were like, get on the table. Um, not if you're around me, I will push you off the table. <laughs> I'm going to push you. Get out of my way. It, um, yeah, it drives me nuts. I've had residents and things do that over the years. I'm like, yeah, I know you think you look really cool, but I just, I find it annoying. Um, so uh, other people might disagree with me and that's, they're right, um, but they're wrong and I'm correct. So, um, okay, but you do want to be above them. So ideally get a stooler, put them on the ground, elbows locked, use your upper body to do the chest compressions. Okay, what else are you going to look at um, with somebody doing compressions so you can give them feedback? Their ECG. Ooh, tell me more. Um, you would want to look, you want to, we'd want to monitor the rhythm of it. All right, tell me how monitoring the rhythm is going to work while somebody's doing chest compressions. You would look for some type of... Um, normal sinus rhythm or as close as you can get. To you that. might look for it, but what are you going to see on that ECG while somebody's doing chest compressions? A bunch of interference. Yeah. You're going to see a bunch of garbage. Yeah. So actually ECG during chest compressions is useless. It's completely, we are going to want the ECG at some point, but I'm not going to use that in any way to give me feedback on the chest compressions because it's, it's useless. It's garbage. So I would think about your quality and quantity of okay. your compression so we get taught um staying alive to, uh, uh, yep uh, or uh, uh baby shark alive. i think was the oh that's one. terrible Don't, yeah yeah no that one was horrible another one bites the dust is an acceptable the queen song yes um you know dust. so you have a rhythm i've even had some staff members <laughs> that have been singing it out heck loud. yeah like it is on as soon absolutely as the cpr i tell people if in. you don't if, if your timing's not right i'm gonna make you sing it out loud <laughs> you can do it in your head and as long as you can do it in your head appropriately but if i come through and it's not right i'm gonna ask you to sing out loud it's more fun uh, what is, but yes so staying alive i always say if you're an optimist staying alive if you're a pessimist another one bites the dust um, oh, if yeah. you're a masochist, baby shark. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um, I, I yeah. Um, okay. So we want the rate to be, and why is that? Why are we using a song and rather than just counting? Just because it's more fun. It's easier to keep so, that rhythm. Keep yeah. That tempo. Cause what is, do you know what that rate is approximately? Was it like 120? Yeah, it's like 100 to 120 beats per minute, which if you're looking at a clock and trying to time your chest compressions with that, you're, you can't do it. Um, and so some studies have been done showing that actually um, teams that go based on staying alive had better results um, than those that were trying to like count or figure it out in their head. So yeah, do, using a song actually is helpful um, as long as the beat is correct. And you just don't want to, you just don't want to pause when you get to the staying alive. <laughs> you need to keep doing the compressions. So yeah. um, don't so put that's someone important. who has no rhythm on first. Right. Uh -oh. I do <laughs> think it's important when you're doing it, if you get your hips into it to like really keep your rhythm going, you get a little, I think you get a little more depth with your compressions. Okay. So we want the rate. What else are you going to look at? Um, well, I mentioned the, the quality of yeah. them. What does so, that mean? um, you know, if you, if you have a Bichon versus a golden retriever, mm -hmm. um, 
the strength of your compressions, how far down you go. And how then far, what are you aiming for? Release is going to need to be consistent. Okay. Is it the consistency that matters or just the depth that you're getting to? What do you mean by consistency? It's, it's the depth, but you would want, you'd want to have the depth be the same with each compression. You're going to try that. I'm, I guess I wouldn't worry as much that like the depth is consistent, but like what depth are you going for? How deep, like how centimeters, like, what are you going to go? Is it like a third of the chest. Yeah. Width? Like yes. a third to a half. You want to, you want to squeeze them a lot. It takes a lot. It's, it's hard work to, to squish. Uh, obviously a Bichon's easier than the, a, a golden. We can address that later, but, um, but yeah, you're trying to compress the chest by about a third to a half, um, which, okay. So that's what we're going for. And I guess the consistency, if you notice the person compressing is not getting as much depth, what does that tell you? They're tired. They're probably tired. So I suppose like when you say consistency, if that's what you mean, that makes sense to me. But like if one beat is like one compression is really deep and the next one is maybe not as good, but then they come back to it, like I think that's okay. But using the consistency maybe as a sign of fatigue, that makes sense. Um, but like the... Does it need to be exactly the same each time? If it's a third, then a half, then a third, like, eh, I don't know if that matters a whole lot, other than as an indicator that maybe they're getting tired. Okay, cool. So how deep is the compression? How frequent is the compression? What else are you going to look at? I would also feel for pulses. Okay, yeah. I think that makes sense. Like, are we, do we think we're generating something? That's pretty subjective. Um, so I don't rely too heavily on that because the patient's also moving a lot and I find it really hard. Um, what else are you going to look at just with how they're giving the compressions? Is there anything else as the, as the leader that you want to observe and to say, oh, you might need to adjust X, Y, or Z? Mucous membrane color? Not usually going to look at, um, it's actually not going to be a patient thing at this point that I'm going to look at. I'm not going to look at the patient. Where do you put your hands? It needs to be, they need to be like directly over the heart. Always? No, it, it oh. depends on the patient. Oh, tell me more. Uh, so I guess positioning of the patient matters. Like yeah. if you had a neonate or a very small one. Okay. Um, do you guys remember hearing about the cardiac pump theory and the thoracic pump theories of chest compressions? Vaguely and eh, maybe not so much. Okay, yes. let's review that. Okay, so there are two theories when we do chest compressions. The cardiac pump, the, the pump is your heart or the thoracic pump where your pump is essentially your thoracic cavity. And so in the cardiac pump theory, and this is the one we employ in smaller patients where I can directly compress and squeeze the chambers of the heart um, to squeeze the blood out. So basically I'm decreasing the volume in those chambers, increasing the pressure and, and causing the, the blood to flow out. I do have to allow good recoil so that heart can relax, fill um, for the next compression. Um, and that's all well and good in a patient that's typically, we say, less than 15 kilograms where I can put my hands directly over where the heart is. Now, how do you know where the heart is? Because it's not beating, so you can't base it on palpation. Where is it? Like usually like the fifth intercostal space. Sure. So during CPR, you're going to like start counting ribs? Behind the elbow. There you go, where the elbow meets the chest. So if you were to pull that forelimb back where the elbow meets the chest is a good is a good rule of thumb um, for most patients. So that that's where you're going to put your hands, about where, I mean, you guys kind of know where the heart is, but if you're describing that to somebody, um, where the elbow meets the chest is, is a pretty good marker. Okay, but if that patient is larger and I can't squeeze the chest enough so that between the ribs I can squeeze the heart itself, then I'm going to switch over and use the thoracic pump theory. And in this theory, I'm actually not squeezing 
using the heart at all, not directly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to decrease the volume in the entire thoracic cavity, which will increase the pressure in the thoracic cavity. And that will be transmitted to the chambers of the heart and cause blood to pump forward. Um, and so in that, I want to get the greatest change in volume in the thoracic cavity that I can. And in order to do that, where should I put my hands? You, usually what we tell people is over the widest part of the chest, which in a big dog is going to be back up over um, far from their heart, really. Um, so where if you're looking at them on there on a table horizontally, where is the, what's the highest point? That's where you should put your hands. So it's back over you know, like, you know, 11th, 12th, 13th rib in some of these cases. You're like, I feel like I'm over the liver. Yeah, you might be, but that's where you're going to get the greatest change in intrathoracic volume. Um, and that's what's going to generate our compressions. So again, usually most people will say around 15 kilograms kilograms is the cutoff. And so if they are less than 15 kilograms, try to put your hand over their heart. So cats and small dogs, medium sized dogs are where it's a little, you know, we can all debate about where we think if you feel like you're getting good chest compressions, um, great. Um, but if not, you might need to switch to put your hands, um, more cotodorsal and, um, which seems a little counterintuitive. Um, so, but it's really important that in larger breed dogs, that's what we're going for. Is there anything objective that I can monitor to see how my chest compressions are? Because we talked about ECG is probably not going to be helpful. Feeling for pulses is going to be very subjective. What objective marker can I use to say, how am I doing? Is there anything? Could you use your end title? Ooh, tell me more. Uh, well, your end title CO2. So doesn't that just tell me about how many breaths I'm giving? Is the patient bagged in this scenario yeah. right now? Yeah, We're, yeah, okay. it's intubated. Okay. You got right. the patient's intubated. Oh okay. gosh, yeah, no, we've we okay. intubated that patient minutes and minutes ago. So the patient's also intubated. Okay, okay. So and then we hooked up our end tidal CO two. Gotcha. Um, but but is that not just telling me how many breaths I'm giving? How is this going to help me to know it's how our chest compressions are? Like a measure of like metabolism. What do you mean? And um, so like if their body is able to excrete and like get rid of carbon dioxide, their isn't that just like based on how many breaths I give? We're dancing around it. Think it through. Where does the CO2 come from? The lungs. It well, comes from the lungs? All right. So you breathe. You, why, do you, why do you breathe again? Remind me. You got two reasons. Oxygen. Bring in oxygen. And release carbon. Get rid of CO2. Oxygen. Why do we need oxygen? It's just your lungs just like having oxygen around? To carry hemoglobin. Okay, so we need oxygen on the hemoglobin. And so why do why I know what's it for? What's oxygen used for? Just for fun? You guys are overthinking this like a lot. What happens to the oxygen once it comes across the lungs? It's distributed throughout the body to the oh, rest of your organs. Oh, it's distributed. How is it getting distributed? Well, you mentioned through the... With the bounty hemoglobin in the blood. In the blood. Right. Okay. Via the circulation. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So your circulation delivers oxygen to the tissues. Great. It drops off the oxygen. Then what happens? The tissues are like, thanks. And that's it. That's the end of the transaction. So there's an exchange. Oh, right? okay. An exchange. What? What's happening? <laughs> so when you get to the capillaries, wherever yep. you are, um, like you said, the, your body drops off the oxygen and then you have this waste product, so to speak. Yeah. Um, 
of carbon dioxide exactly. and that needs to be excreted. We need exactly to get rid right. of that. Okay. So CO2 is a byproduct of cellular metabolism, right? We bring in oxygen and we convert um, some molecules. We make some ATP and that's wonderful. We're not going to get any more. Don't worry. Don't, don't forget. We're not going to get more detailed than that. Um, but then we get some CO2 produced, right? Cellular respiration, cellular metabolism. And so all that CO2, if we build up to, that's not good. And so then um, the tissues are like, okay, thanks for the oxygen. Here's, here's my garbage. And your blood's like, no problem. We got this. Then what happens to it? What happens to that CO2 that we just dropped off at the tissues? It gets recirculated into the lungs and excreted. How does it get there? Through the blood. Through the blood. How does the blood bring it there? It circulates. Your yeah. Your right? heart has to beat to do that. Okay. So in a dead patient, what happens to the CO2? It builds up. It's never. It's all just released. sitting out in the periphery. Like your cells initially are still doing their job, right? Like they're still doing their function. They're still taking whatever oxygen they have, or maybe they convert to anaerobic metabolism. But either way, there is CO2 being produced, but it's all just sitting down at your toes until you as the good doctor come through and start doing chest compressions, right? And so as you generate some circulation, that CO2 comes back to the lungs dead lungs can exchange gas. Gas is just going up and down its concentration gradient. Like that's not an active process. It's the blood getting it to the lungs that actually allows for that gas exchange to happen. So during CPR, when we're giving breaths, like any CO2 that gets to the lungs is going to come out. It's the problem of getting it to the lungs. So during an arrest situation, the end tidal CO2 is telling you about circulation, not about ventilation. So any, we just, it's whatever CO2 gets back to the lungs is leaving. It's going down its concentration gradient. So if my end tidal CO2 is seven, what does that mean? The chest compressions are probably not efficient enough to circulate. Yeah, they're not the worst ever, but they're not doing good enough. What am I aiming for? What's my goal for with my end tidal CO2 when I do chest compressions? 35 to 45. I mean, that's normal. It's, it's a lofty goal. It is. Um, basically, but like as high as you can get. Like that's what you're going for. Um, do you guys know, are there any cutoffs like above which we have a better chance of getting that patient back? Never ever heard that. So yeah, usually any, any entitled CO2 of about 15 is, is really what we're saying. If we get above 15, we have a better, obviously the higher that number, the better the chances are. Um, but some studies that, that 15 seem to be a pretty good cutoff. If we're not reaching at least the mid teens, the odds of getting this patient back are, are pretty crummy. Um, and so that's a great way. It's a great tool because the end tidal CO2 is going to read even during chest compressions, right? So that's not going to be interfered with by um, like the ECG will. It's not subjective, like pulse quality and things like that. And so monitoring end tidal CO2, every time we take a breath, I get a new end tidal, or every time we give a breath, we get a new end tidal CO2 reading. That is the most important monitoring tool you have during CPR, full stop. The most important one you have. If you are generating CO2s of like six or seven, you as the leader should look at that and then look at the person giving compressions and figure out how can we be doing better? Is it that they've gotten fatigued? Did it used to be 14 and now it's dropping? That person is tired. I don't care how long it's been, switch them out. Um, look at their hand placement, look at the depth, look at the rate, look at, you should be assessing all those things and giving that person feedback on ways that they can make it better. What if they're doing everything great? You're like, okay, they, they just started that this like person is like a bodybuilder and they're like super buff and they're like, yeah, it's just doing amazing chest compressions. The depth looks good. Um, the rate is appropriate. Their hand placement is right. And you're like, ah, this is still not generating good chest compressions. We're not getting good circulation. Is there anything else you can do? 
or do you just call it at that point? I'm assuming that at this time, like fluids are being bolused. It depends on if they need fluids. I don't know mm-hmm. if they needed fluids, but yeah, in, in our hit by car dog, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah. So we're doing all the other things, but it's just from a chest compression standpoint. Is there anything else you can do? Could you turn them dorsally and do it like a ventral dorsal? Depends on the patient. Like if it was a really barrel chested mm-hmm. dog and you, yeah. So I think that's a really good point. Like consider, are they in the best position? In lateral recumbency is going to be best for the vast majority of your patients. Like a really barrel chested dog, there are some people that will say press on the sternum kind of like they would do in mm-hmm. people. Um, but it's rare that we'll do that. But it's a good thought. Like how's the position? Anything else? What about this Labrador that got hit by a car? So the other, the other things that I would consider would be, is this a candidate for open chest CPR, internal cardiac massage? So if this is a big dog and we just can't, we're using the thoracic pump theory and we just can't generate enough change in intrathoracic pressure to generate good um, circulation, I would consider converting to open chest CPR. That would be a trigger for me. Um, in a dog that got hit by a car, I'd also be wondering, like, does it have pleural space disease that I should have done that already? Um, but if everything else being equal, if I'm like, we're doing pretty darn good job of everything, I would consider if it's an option. And if it's not, I might consider that might be a reason for me to call call a CPR and be like, okay, you know, we're not we're not doing a good job. We're not generating sufficient CO2 that makes me think that this animal has a good chance of coming back. So either I'm going to escalate or try to adjust or adapt, or I might stop. Um, so it's a semi-objective thing that I can use to help decide where I'm going to go. So if you're the one running the code, looking at the CO2 and deciding how are we doing, I think is a really important um, tool that you can use. I mean, it's something I will use. So I'll watch the people doing it. I also try to make it a little bit of a competition. All right. Sally got 17. I need you to get to 19 and <laughs> come through. All right. You got two minutes to get to 19. Oh, we got 19. Who's up? Who's going to, you know, um, you know, it, some people might see that's a little cynical, but higher energy, man. Let's, let's do it's the best the we can. Like going. we're doing the best yeah. we can. Yeah. Let's do our best. Um, do you okay. ever yeah. have in your head, you know, I, most of these situations are unpredictable, right? It's not like you're planning to have a code today. Right. However, when you start running the code, you already have in your head, this patient is going to be a good candidate for open chest CPR, or we are not going to go there. Yeah. Again, hopefully that conversation happened before that patient ever, you know, got hospitalized. Hopefully that was part of the initial conversation, but sometimes things come in on emergency. Jackie, you're going to deal with this where something comes in and you, you just have to decide right now that's where sometimes the divide and conquer, right? Like you as the doctor might be like, okay, do these things. And I need to go talk to this client. Since you might have the conversation with a client and say, your dog was just hit by a car. We've started doing CPR. Given his size and what we're seeing right now, I think we need to convert to open chest CPR. I don't have time to go into all of what that entails, but it is going to be more involved than what we were doing before. Is that something we're okay to do? Boom. Like (laughs) the last one we had, we had a a dog um, that arrested here. This was a few weeks ago. It was actually not a big dog. It was a little dog, but it had severe pleural effusion. It got referred over and it arrested like a minute after getting here. Um, And so um, I was running that code and um, I, I basically called to the room. There were several doctors there and lots of people. I was like, I need somebody to call this owner and I need somebody to get ready to open this dog's chest. Who wants to do one? One of the interns like, I will call the owner. And I was like, great. (laughs) So I got the, 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 the pack ready to open the chest. And that's the conversation she had. And so that was a small dog, but it had pleural space disease. So I just kind of sliced open the chest, let all the fluid. And then we actually converted back to like external chest compressions because you can't get your hand in a dog that's the size of a Shih Tzu. But, um, but that was to relieve all the air. We still had to open up the chest, which means now there's a surgery attached to that. If we, so we got that dog back. 
Um, and that now, now that I have some time, the dog's doing a little bit more stable. Now I go talk to the client and say, here's what's really involved in this. But we didn't have time for that whole conversation. We just have to decide right now. Um, it's like, I'm really sorry to have to force you to make this decision with limited information. I just need to know if we're going to keep going, we should do this. Is that okay? Yes or no. And then if it's yes, go for it. If, if it's not something you can do, if you're not in a facility where you can do open chest CPR and you might not be, that's Okay. Then you just say, we're not, we're not providing very effective chest compressions here. I recommend that we stop doing CPR. And that's the conversation. But if you can do open chest, boom, boom, boom. We just got to have this decision right now. Um, and you as the person running the code might be the one talking to the client. Um, you might direct somebody else. To, again, it's going to be a little bit, how is everybody comfortable? What, who's trained for what? How are you going to, are you the only person that can run the code? So somebody else has to talk to them. You know, you'll, you'll sort those things out. But, um, but yeah, you don't have a lot of time. But yeah, hopefully we've had that conversation in advance that, hey, you have a great Dane. Um, in order for us to do effective chest compressions, we would have to go into his chest to do that. So right now, this is how likely or not I think it is that we're going to need to do CPR. But if we do, we should do open chest CPR. So that means doing a thoracic and basically a surgical approach. Um, and if that's successful, that's going to be a lot more involved to recover from. Um, if we aren't, if you don't want us to do that, that is okay. But it means we shouldn't do CPR. Like for me, if it's like an animal either has a disease process, like, you know, it's a spontaneous pneumothorax and they don't want to do open chest CPR, then it's a DNR. Like don't offer them something that isn't going to work. Um, you know, it's a diaphragmatic hernia. Well, in order, I don't care if it's a dachshund. In order to get effective CPR, you're going to have to open the chest. And so let's have that conversation. And if they say, oh, we're, we're not, we can't take that on. That's totally fine. But that means no, no CPR will be done. And I just, th those are the only options they have. Um, not everybody agrees with me and that's totally fine, but that's my my approach and my take is again, why would I, why would I put the animal through this? Why would I put our team through that? Why would I charge the client money for a procedure that I can say with certainty is not going to be effective? Um, anyhow. All right. So that was, we talked about compressions. That was pretty good. Um, what about the breathing part? So let's, let's say it was really easy to get them intubated. We'll just say, cause it's a podcast. It was, <laughs> it, we got them intubated. Now what? So set them up to bag them, right? To give them. What does that? What do you mean bag? If them? you have, um, let's see, they're portable ones like the Ambu bags. Okay, so there's an Ambu bag which is just yeah, it's got a pop off valve essentially inside. So you squeeze the bag, it goes in, and the air releases out. Cool. So I would assign someone to that. Um, what if you don't have an Ambu bag? Do you have an anesthesia machine? There you go. Yeah, you hook them up to the, turn the anesthesia off. No gas. <laughs> yeah, no gas. <laughs> um, but hook them up to the anesthetic circuit and then just use the bag for that. So yeah, make sure the pop-off valve, like either you have one of those things where you can press it and squeeze the bag and then release it, or somebody's going to have to screw that pop-off valve closed, give a breath, unscrew it, which will be an annoying. But so hopefully you'll have one of those buttons you can push. Um, but yeah, so okay. So they're going to give some breaths. What Can you tell me more about the breaths they're going to give? It's going to be hard for them to give efficient breaths because while you're doing chest compressions mm -hmm. you're going to have a lot of it's going to be like resistance should they try to coordinate with the person giving chest compressions ideally <laughs> yeah i agree ideally it's also practically numbers right yeah no just give breaths don't even worry about it is my advice okay so they're gonna have some resistance but all right um do you worry about like the pressure like you would under anesthesia in would an emergency the situation things? i feel like you wouldn't be worrying about you still do. You don't want to blow the lungs out. Right. Um, so you're still going to aim for like max trauma. of 20 um, mm -hmm. usually is what you're going to do. So 20 centimeters of water. Um, so I'd still have them look at that. Okay. Um, how many breaths are they going to give? 
Is it like six and 30 seconds? So you can give 12. That's probably a little faster than I would go for. I would say six to eight breaths a minute is pretty good. Um, And that's hard to do. I know that sounds weird to say that, but it's really hard to do because during a CPR, everybody is running around, busy, chaotic, and you're the person giving breaths and you go, whoosh. That's an eternity, mm-hmm. right? Like right. all the people listening are like, did this, what happened? What happened to the podcast, right? Like <laughs> that's all that dead air. That's against all the rules. That's such a long, awkward time when every, and there's no song because that'd be the world's worst song, <laughs> right? Like there is no song right. that's going to have a beat that goes once every 10 seconds. Um, and so, but it is really important that that person doesn't start getting excited watching everybody else and go whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. It's too many breaths. What's the problem if you give too many breaths though? Like who cares if they're hyperventilating? I think it was a little bit to what you were saying, Jackie. Yeah, you you want the carbon dioxide to build up in their system. I don't need the car. I actually don't. It's not. It has nothing to do with the carbon dioxide at this point. What kind of a breath are you giving? Small, (laughs) wimpy little breaths. Hopefully not. Hopefully you're giving decent breaths, but you're giving a positive pressure breath. Mm -hmm. When normally when you breathe, right, your chest expands and we generate some negative pressure and air flows in normally. So we're giving a positive pressure breath. I'm pushing air into the lungs and all that positive pressure is also transmitting to everything else in the chest, including the chambers of the heart. And when that positive pressure is going into the lungs, it's making it harder for the heart to fill, right? I'm doing chest compressions, but I have to have complete recoil. I need to make sure I allow relaxation so that the next little rush of blood can come in. But if I now push um, um, and I give a big positive pressure breath, it might make it harder for that, um, that cycle for the blood to fill the heart, which means the next compression I give is less effective. And so I need to give some breaths. I need to give some oxygen. That's really good. But if I do too many, I increase the intrathoracic pressure in the chest for too long and I can reduce venous return to the heart and make my compressions and my circulation less effective. So it's actually really important that the person giving breaths is not giving too many, mm-hmm. six to eight breaths per minute. And, and again, that's not very many. Um, and it's really hard. It's like way lower than a normal respiratory rate. Um, so if you're just thinking, how often does a dog breathe? I'll do it that much. No, that's still too much. We want it just enough to get the oxygen in and, and any CO2 that's coming around out. Um, but it's not very many breaths. We don't want all that positive pressure in the thorax. Um, that's, that's not going to be helpful for venous return to the heart. Um, so those are like the two main things that I, that I focus on when I'm running a code is how, who's doing the chest compressions? Also directing traffic. Like who's up next? Like getting the next person starts compressions. I'm already saying who's going to go after them, right? Like I'm already planning ahead, um, making sure that the person giving breaths is not giving too many, um, making sure that everything looks right with how they're giving it. Like asking them, is there a lot of resistance? Do we think there's a problem with pleural space disease? Do we need to potentially convert? Who's hooking up the end tidal CO2? We do hook them up to ECG, but why? I just said that ECG was essentially useless. Why do we even, we do, why do we even do it? Because is it like every two minutes you would take like a few second break and you would look for like a spontaneous heartbeat? Nope, I'm, I'm going to use my end CO2 to tell me if I have a spontaneous heartbeat. How will I know based on my end CO2 that the heart started beating? It would start to become normal. Like the CO2 would be a little bit more 
It'd be a lot more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd get a sudden mm-hmm. jump in my CO2. So I'd go from like in the teens. So I'll be like, oh crap, it's, it's 29. Like I did not suddenly become a, a weightlifter. Like that didn't just happen mm-hmm. in the middle of me doing chest compressions. Um, it's probably that the heart started beating again. So I'm going to use the end tidal CO2 as a better indicator. The only reason I'm using the ECG during CPR is to identify a shockable rhythm or not. So if you don't have a defibrillator, you don't even need an entitled CO2, or you don't even need, you do need an entitled. You don't need the ECG. It doesn't matter. It's shockable rhythm or not. And there are four arrest rhythms, four rhythms associated with death. Do you know what they are? Pulseless electrical activity. Yep, that's PEA. one. Yep, good. Um, V-fib. Yep, ventricular fibrillation. Good. AFib. Not AFib. <laughs> that's not an arrest rhythm. That is an abnormal rhythm, but not associated with death. So ventricular fibrillation, pulseless electrical activity, activity, the one you see on television all the time. What's the other one? Flatlining. Flatline or asystole. And then there's another pulseless one. So we had pulseless electrical activity and then pulseless VTAC, pulseless ventricular tachycardia. So those are the four arrest rhythms. Which ones do you defibrillate and which ones do you not defibrillate? The PEA, you can defibrillate. Nope. All right. I'm going to explain this in a way, and then you guys are going to remember it forever. Does that sound good? Mm -hmm. Let's do that. Okay. So when you are defibrillating, what are you doing? You're trying to like restart the heart, like like jumper jumper cables in the car, right? Not exactly. That's what it seems like, but you're not actually starting the heart. You're actually shutting down the electrical activity in the heart with defibrillation, which is sort of counterintuitive, okay? So if you think about like what fibrillation is, so ventricular fibrillation, that means that all of your ventricular myocytes are trying to fire at the same time. They are not coordinated. And so basically um, the heart looks like people describe it as like a sack of worms and that's a pretty accurate and gross description, but every, everything it's quivering, but it is not coordinated mm-hmm. with any type of um, contraction because every cell is speaking for themselves and nobody is listening to any signals that might be coming from the SA node. Okay. So if you imagine each ventricular myocyte is doing its own thing, it's, it's like a, um, an auditorium full, this was an analogy one of my mentors used, an auditorium full of people and everybody's talking to each other. And, and the speaker is over there and uh, the microphone's not working and they can't get anyone's attention, okay? So you as the defibrillator come through and you go, hey, you yell really loud in, in the auditorium. You get everybody's attention so that everybody shuts up for a second. And then the speaker's like, all right, I have something to say. And now everybody can hear. Because meanwhile, the speaker's talking, and that, that's the essay note. The essay note is this quiet speaker over here that's just like, what's up, everybody? I have some things to say. And everybody's doing their own thing. Um, so me, as the loud defibrillator, I come through, shut up for a second. <laughs> everybody at the same time is silent. And then if the essay note is firing, then maybe the ventricular cells can listen to him. Okay. Um, so I'm actually shutting down the electric. Everybody has to be quiet at once. Okay. Um, in order to see if the SA node is firing. I don't know if the SA node is firing. If I'm looking at an, an ECG and I see ventricular fibrillation, I have no idea what the SA node is doing because there's just so much noise there. Um, but if I can quiet everybody down, maybe the SA node um, is firing and then those cells can listen. Um, so in pulseless ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation, where I have a lot of ventricular activity, I need to shut it down. 
I'm not, I'm, they're not jumper cables. I can't restart the heart. The heart is more complicated than that. I'm just trying to see if the SA node can get a signal through. In pulseless electrical activity, which is essentially an occasional, there's, there's really not much going on, or in asystole where there's no electrical activity, if the, the SA node is not talking. If it was, it's, it's a silent auditorium. There's like maybe a couple people whispering in the background. <laughs> like that's it. So if somebody came up to the podium and started speaking, everybody could hear. Um, so I don't need to shut down the electrical activity of the heart because there isn't any. I only need to shut down when there's too much. So in the, in the um, rhythms where we have lots and lots of electrical activity, I defibrillate. And the nice thing about that is I can look at that ECG in a split second and be like, too much activity, defibrillate. Not enough activity, go back to CPR. Um, so I don't have to like analyze it. I don't even have to distinguish between pulseless ventricular tachycardia and VFib. I just have to be like too much activity, not enough activity. And, and that's it. Um, and that's the only reason I really use my, my ECG during CPR is shockable rhythm, VFib or VTAC. Yes, no. All right, moving on. Um, so that that's kind of the difference is again, we're not starting the heart, we're shutting it down. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hopefully that'll make it a little easier to remember. If you do not have a defibrillator, then I don't really, I don't really need the ECG. Not until I've gotten them back and my end tidal CO2 is better and then I can assess the rhythm. Like it's a good idea to have it, but specifically for use in CPR, that's the only reason I need my, my ECG. Um, so if you don't have a defibrillator, you don't even have to, like don't waste time hooking up the ECG at this point. Just make sure you get the end tidal CO2 hooked up. Um, and then, you know, drugs, things like that, that's all sort of advanced CPR. So focus your attention and your time and training of your team on chest compressions, breathing, those kinds of things. That's really where the majority of your, your efforts should be. If you have a defibrillator, yeah, like, you know, make sure people are aware and how to use that. And that would be great. Um, drugs, what, what drugs would you use in our? Epinephrine. Epinephrine. Sure. Yeah. What's that going to do? So you have, um, hopefully you have your vasoconstriction, Yeah, right? that's the main thing. We want some vasoconstriction. Um, what other thing is that going to provide for us? What else is that going to do to the heart? Going to increase its rate? Yeah, so it's a positive chronotrope and it's a positive inotrope. So if the heart can respond, the idea is to increase the rate and the contractility. But the main thing we're really relying on it for is, is the vasoconstriction. You're right. I want to try to increase um, the blood pressure. So the little circulation that I have, I would like the pressure to be a little bit better. Um, so because dead patients tend to have very poor vascular tone. Yeah. So I want to improve vascular tone. So epinephrine, what else might you use? Atropine. Yeah, atropine is really commonly used in veterinary medicine. Um, would it surprise you to know that it's not even mentioned in the CPR guidelines in people? Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So, so yes, it would surprise you to know that. Um, there's actually very little evidence on using atropine during CPR. What What is atropine? We typically use it to increase your heart rate, right? Yeah, so we talk about it being a vagolytic, right? right? So it's going to abolish any parasympathetic tone. And this is not the time for parasympathetic tone. This is the time for fight or flight, right? Um, so I want to abolish any parasympathetic tone or vagal tone in this patient. Um, we still we still use it in veterinary medicine. It is still part of the recommendations for veterinary CPR, um, our recover guidelines. Um, and it's not clear that we need to. We don't know. Um, but the reasons that our patients arrest, again, 
reason are probably different than a lot of the reasons that human patients tend to arrest. Um, and so having high vagal tone, like a patient that um, had respiratory distress before they arrested or had vomiting um, or something before they arrested, they might have high vagal tone. So I do think it's not unreasonable to consider a single dose of atropine, um, especially if you think um, they had high vagal tone, you know, um, before just preceding arrest. I think that's reasonable, but there isn't strong evidence for it at this point. So, but it's also important to know there's, there's not really good prospective placebo controlled animal, um, double blinded clinical trials on using epinephrine and CPR either. Um, and, and you can imagine that you wouldn't really want to sign up for that study. Um, <laughs> I <would think> so. <laughs> yeah, it makes physiologic sense to use things like that epinephrine. There are studies comparing epinephrine versus things like vasopressin or different, but like just like epinephrine versus saline, nobody really wants to, to sign up for that uh, clinical trial. So the, uh, there's a lot of evidence that we are lacking um, to, be to be clear. So just the fact that we don't have great strong evidence for using atropine doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't. Um, but I think it's important to know that we don't have that strong evidence. And again, in people, it's not the standard of care, um, which I found kind of interesting when I learned that as well, because we it's very standard of care in veterinary medicine. Um, but the drugs are secondary, right? Like the, the mainstay is going to be establishing an airway and providing good chest compressions. Like that is the most important thing you can, you can spend your time training your staff, getting good at yourself, like having, you know, focusing on that. If you don't have a lot of other people, those are the jobs that we need to focus on. Um, all the other stuff is sort of gravy. Um, and then, yeah, the real work is, is after you get that patient back. Um, that's, that's when it gets fun. Um, depending on who you are, you might think that's fun or not, but, um, you know, trying to keep them from dying again is the key. And so that's for me also where, like what we talked about at the beginning, what caused them to arrest. And I need to now focus on, you know, if we've reversed that, we gave them a transfusion. Um, okay, now I need to find the bleeding and stop that or, you know, fix the, so, you know, we can have really good outcomes in these patients if the underlying cause is something that can be reversed. Um, but we have to make sure we can reverse that and keep it reversed um, or prevent it from coming back again. Because now we have a patient who has just died and now it's got all the potential secondary issues that it didn't have before. So now, before it was bad enough to die and now um, it has potential kidney injury, um, you know, brain injury, um, hepatic injury, all sorts of other issues that we have to deal with and support them through. We're not going to talk about that in the show today because that's enough. But um, what other thoughts do you guys have about doing CPR or questions? Or? Um, I've briefly once heard of the precordial thrill. Uh, the uh, precordial thump? Thump, yes. Yeah. What's that's the what precordial <laughs> thump? Have you, you, have, you haven't heard of that one, Angela? No, enlighten me. What do you remember what it was? If I guess if you don't have a defibrillator, mm -hmm. you would um essentially You would like punch them really hard in the punch chest. Punch the heart. Yeah. <laughs> I've never I've never done it. Um it seems sort of silly. Yeah. <laughs> um there are anecdotal reports how you know where yeah, it is. It's just like a, a sudden thud um to the heart and that it is like a, a mechanical defibrillation. And I think some of this like there's something to that because there are certainly reports like of of um individuals dying after a sudden, you know, severe thud to the heart. Um that you get that mechanical stunning that can lead to electrical stunning. Um, I'm not saying it's never worked in the history of the world, um, but I would say it's probably very <laughs> infrequent. Um, and it might make, uh, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah, you can read, you can read about the precordial thump. Um, I wouldn't spend any time mm -hmm. at all focusing on training for that. Uh, yeah, 
No, I wouldn't bother with it. Okay. It, that's my that's my two cents. It's interesting. It makes for a cool story if you're like writing if you're writing a movie script, you should totally write that in. Um, <laughs> but if you're writing a movie movie script, you're also going to defibrillate the patient who goes into asystole. So, yeah, every every time you've seen anybody uh-huh. die um, on a true. movie or something like that, they go into asystole and then they come over cuckoo, and that's wrong. So you know that's the beauty of the movies is you have to go with what's the most dramatic, <laughs> right? Is flatlining is dramatic. Like when you see that, people understand like that's a dead patient. If they saw fibrillation, they'd be like, what's all that static? They wouldn't understand. So flatline, I know that means a dead patient, and then defibrillating is super cool. And so yeah, we're totally going to do that, and then poof, they're going to come back, and we're all going to go get coffee. That's not how it works in real life. Um, but yeah, precordial thump would be amazing in a movie. Just be like, oh, no, you can't die. And then you slam on their <laughs> chest and then they pop back up and then you both go get coffee and everybody wins. Um, I don't even like coffee, but. <laughs> <laughs> it would be pretty cool. But it would be appropriate in the movie to like, let's go get a coffee. Maybe a donut. I can have a donut. They can have coffee. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend time worrying about the precordial thump. Any other like. That was a good question, though. I like it because you will hear fun stuff about it. Well, we this is nothing to do with the medicine per se, okay. but we kind we kind of uh, touched on it earlier. Um, make sure you like thank your staff after you know, and oh, just yeah. touch base. And I know um, I've been through a couple of really hard codes, yeah. Um, and people are just emotionally drained afterwards. Yeah. So I think it's a really good point. Something that was just super helpful is to kind of um, we do like a debrief. No, just do yeah, do a debrief yeah. and just kind of exhale afterwards. Yeah. And yeah, so nothing to do with the medicine. No, but I think that's you know really it's a point. big thing, mm-hmm. and it's especially if you don't do it all the time. Going and you, yeah, yeah. You might if you do this it. infrequently, I think it makes a lot of sense to. Um, yeah, thank every. I think that's really good. Thanks everybody for your help, and then also maybe now's a good time to talk about what went well and what do we need to do better next time? Like, Hey, I really, I I love Angela, how you just jumped in and started doing chest compressions. And then you were really responsive when I gave you feedback on, you know, how to adjust. That was fantastic. Um, you know, Jackie, it was really great when I, you know, I just kind of barked orders at you and said, I need this, this, and you just went and got it and you came back right away and it was wonderful. Um, you know, Sam, I love how you suggest, you asked me like, Hey, should we, you know, do what, do we need to give another dose of epinephrine? Like, I really appreciate that you brought me back because I'd forgotten about that at that point. Um, so I really appreciated all the things you guys did. Um, I think, you know, looking back, if we could do it even better next time, um, it might've been great if we had communicated a little bit better about who was going to um, grab the laryngoscope or who was going to hold the head up or, you know, it, like whatever you guys need to have that discussion. But I, I think you're right. Like telling everybody, thank you. And if people emotionally have the bandwidth to, to have a debrief at that time, to talk about what and well, I think that's great. If people don't, if you, you know, read the room, right? If it looks like people are upset, a couple of people are crying, like, okay, let me just write down some notes and maybe we can t- come back to this later um, if you're the one running it. Or if you're not the one running it, but you still had some thoughts, observations, or questions, write those down and ask, hey, can I, can I, you know, is now a good time or should I bring this up later? But I had some questions about what we did or some ideas of maybe what could work better. Um, but I think it in general is good for morale if you use every opportunity as a learning opportunity, right? Because that just makes it feel like it wasn't completely, you know, wasted or, or useless or, hey, how can we do better next time? But acknowledging what went well, too, because um, there's always going to be things that went well. Um, yeah, it's a really good point, Angela. Thanks for bringing that up. 
I probably need to do. I think I'm pretty good about thanking people. Um, but usually afterwards, like, it, you know, it, it gets like everybody just kind of disperses. Right. <laughs> um, it's like, okay, because you have, you still have work to do, right? Yeah. Like, it doesn't mean your day is over. You still have more things. You have to go back to the other patients or, or sort out. And sometimes I see people later, hey, thanks again for your help earlier, um, you know, when you came over to help with that code. Because usually it is an all hands on deck thing. Um, and most people are happy to help. Um, but I think it is nice to just acknowledge that. All right. Well, that's probably a good a good place to end on. This was really I wasn't sure how CPR was going to go as like a <laughs> podcast, but I feel like it was a pretty good discussion. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Not cool. Bad. Yeah. All right. Well, here's hoping that you don't have to do a lot of CPR, but when you do, you do it effectively, you do it well, you communicate with your team and practice, practice, practice. Yeah. Um, but don't feel like you have to do it every time. That's probably summing it up. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably going to be it for today's um, uh, today's discussion. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Angela and Jackie, for coming onto the show today. It was really great having you. Thank you for Been having fun. us.